worship you and worship our King. Now, Father God, as we look into your incredible holy word, we pray, God, that you would minister to us, you would reveal to us by your Holy Spirit what you have for us today, Father God. We ask it in your Son's name. Amen. One thing I wanted to mention before we jump into the Word is, you know, Mason's been coming here about once a month to help us in leading worship. This is probably his last time for a while. He's got ministry obligations that have ramped up somewhere else. So Mason, thank you for, let's thank Mason for coming. He's been, it's great having a gifted young man come and use his talents and bless us. So thank you for that. Well, I want you to, I want you to imagine something. I want you to suppose that you are out to lunch with a friend of yours, and this friend of yours confides in you that they have been fudging, not just a little bit, but a lot, quite a bit, their personal expense account for their job. Okay, they've been padding it for themselves. And your friend tells you this, and they justify it. This friend justifies it by telling you that their, their personal finances are, are really tight right now, and the, especially the last couple of years have been really rough. Uh, yet, but you know what? They've been a great employee. Actually, they've brought in a lot of revenue for their company, so it's really not that big of a deal. Well, needless to say, uh, you're shocked. You're shocked at hearing this. You're like, I can't, I can't believe this, especially because, I mean, this person has been an active part of your church, including being in, in Bible studies, uh, even teaching in adult classes at times. How could they do this? How could they think about doing this? Well, as a brother or sister in Christ, what should you do? What should you do? What's, our respons- what's your responsibility as a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Well, in our study in the book, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we're in the midst of what we talked about these three weeks uh, in chapter 18 that really are all about uh, what I've said is what we call in Christian ethics or qualities which should characterize the relationships that followers of Jesus have with one another. It's a hard-hitting chapter. And the reason we talked about that, remember I said the reason this whole chapter is dedicated to our relationships with one another is because Jesus is so aware. He knows that our, our enemy, his favorite tactic in his aim to get us to, to stop growing in our faith and to not move forward or even to get uh, uh, upset with the failure with other people, whatever, it's really going to be contingent on our relationships with other people in the church. A lot of times, enemy uses relationships to, in the church, instead of them functioning the way they should, he gets in there and causes them to function in a way that is unhealthy, and that causes so much havoc in personal relationships and in people's walk with God. As fellow members of the body of Christ, we said that we've been given a tremendous and sacred responsibility towards one another, and this responsibility is to spur one another on towards Christ-likeness. That's our responsibility. Last week, we saw that this whole topic was kicked off, remember, by the disciples? The disciples come to Jesus, and they, and they want to know which one of them was going to be the most great, the most great, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When the kingdom of heaven established who is going to be the greatest. So that's what kicks off this whole chapter 18. Now remember in calling to himself a child, a small child as a visual aid, Jesus tells them that not only to be great in the kingdom of heaven, not only he tells them that to be great in the kingdom, but even enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be like this child. 
You must turn from your sin, turn towards your sin, towards Jesus with childlike humility. So just to even get in, even beside, not even to be great, just to get in, we have to have this childlike humility. That's why he talks about throughout these verses, we're gonna, those verses and the verses we're going to see today, he t- Jesus refers to all people that have put their trust in him as little ones. He calls us a child. He calls us little ones because that's how we not only come to faith, but that's how we remain great in the kingdom of heaven. We saw that child, this childlike humility that we share with one another, with other followers of Jesus, results in a deep care for one another, okay? And we saw that it stems from the fact that we are all one in the body of Christ. I think we forget this so often. We live in such, remember we mentioned this, we live in such an individualistic society, but the reality is we are one in Christ. We belong to one another. We're a family. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, last week we saw that out of this love for one another, we're to spur one another on towards Christ-likeness by not causing our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble into sin. And we talked about how we do that, and we are to do this by eliminating at all costs, no matter what we need to do, anything that could cause us to be ensnared or to be enslaved into sin. And we do this by relentlessly pursuing personal holiness. That's how we do it. See, it's a chain reaction, okay? Because the reality is that there's, when we, we mentioned this, and they were talking about it in the adult study this morning, is there's no such thing as this private sin, this whole idea that I just did it myself and no one's going to be impacted. That's not, that's impossible. Sin always has impact on the lives of others. So continuing on with this, his emphasis on our responsibility to spur one another on towards Christ-likeness, we're going to see now this morning that Jesus is going to totally raise the bar even more. He is going to raise the bar as far as what we are supposed to do. And really, he's going to raise the bar to a place for, for many people, if not most of us, it's kind of an uncomfortable place. Jesus is really good at doing that. And he's really going to do it this morning, okay? He's really going to push us into this and really kind of an uncomfortable place that really, though, unless we go there, we're not going to be able to experience these kind of relationships with other believers that are going to truly spur us on towards Christ likeness. Okay? And really it stems from this incredible value that God puts on each and every follower of Jesus. That's where it comes from, the incredible value. So turn your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start off in verse 10. We're going to get 10 verses this morning. Verse 10 says this, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying here is that we need, every one of us, we need to be careful not to despise, or a better way, some of your versions might even say this, we need to not look down on any fellow followers of Jesus and place any more importance on some, which is so easy to do. We need to not devalue other people just because of how we, how we kind of assume they're living, their, where they're looking like, or they're living their life, or what their station in life is, okay? We're not to look down on them with any disdain or any indifference as if they are little value to us. 
Now, there are many ways I think that we do this, and I alluded to it just a second ago. I said, I think one of the biggest ways that we probably do this is the easiest way is we place more importance on people and le- some people and less importance on other people. You ever notice yourself doing that at all? You see someone who seems they're more meek and they're mild or they're shy and they're kind of behind the scenes, but then you see another person who's way more outgoing. They have a position of importance. They're up front or they're whatever, and we kind of do this pecking order, don't we? It's easy to say, okay, that person, to me, and we, don't, we would never say it to ourselves, though. We would never, and we would never you know, let that come out of our lips or even in our mind that we're actually facing someone more important. But I think we do that. It's easy to do that. To see that, oh, that's just so-and-so. But that's so-and-so. So easy for us to do. That's where our sin nature really tells, tell, takes over. Jesus tells us this. He says, my dear brothers and sisters... How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? How? You can't. That's not the way it works in the kingdom. Now, besides how it can be caused uh, as, as negative to treat people, that's what because ha- what, what happens is we will see someone, and we don't even know it, but have you ever noticed yourself before being more like, Okay, when you're around certain people, because, well, they're important. So it actually causes us to treat people even differently, where other people sometimes go, oh, hey, yeah, how's it going? So not only is that mindset, we have it in our head, but it also starts, it starts to come out in, in how we treat pe- people. Now, besides how it can cause us to negatively treat them, Jesus gives us even more, kind of a bizarre, but even more important reason to not look down on other believers. And I never noticed this in the Bible before. I never saw this. It's because we as believers literally have angels that are representing us before the very throne of God. Did you see that in that verse? We have angels. Now, first, let me tell you, this is not referring to guardian angels. Okay, there's not much scripture to back the whole idea. There's some that you can kind of pull from there, but this is, that's not what this passage is talking about. What it is saying is that as followers of Jesus, we are represented in heaven by certain angels who are important enough to have the privilege to have access to the very presence of God. Isn't that, I don't, I've never heard that before. I never thought about that before. But think about how that impacts how we view one another in the body of Christ. When I know that you or you or you have these, I don't, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but there are, certain, there are angels that represent us. You know, the Bible tells us that angels are ministering spirits. That they represent us before the throne of God. Whoa, I better be careful. Careful of where my mindset is when I, the way I treat other people and look at other people. God's saying they are important. Puts perspective on people, doesn't it? Now, once again, you're going to just a side note. So many of some of you in your, in your Bible, we did this a couple weeks ago, as with verse 21 back in chapter 17, you might notice there's no, there's no verse 11. Okay, once again, we have one of those situations where um, because there's... This, this verse was missing from quite a few earlier manuscripts that they have found after the Bible had been written and people had put in verses and all that. Stuff. So they realized, okay, 
Some, some, per, some we might not put this in because this might have just been added by a scribe or something like that. But you're going to see the thought still comes, still comes in, as we'll see in a second here. Now, Jesus goes on to give this powerful illustration now of the extreme value and the love that God has for each individual believer. We've seen that they have, we have angels. We've got this group of angels that's representing us. But now we're going to see how much he loves us, even when we go astray, even when we wander off. Very familiar story. Look at verses 12 and 13. And Jesus says, what do you think? Basically, listen up, okay? If a man had a, has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And he finds it. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So Jesus is, once again, the way he does so well, he's painting this picture for us. He's got a picture of a man who has a hundred sheep, okay? And one of those sheep goes astray. So he leaves those 99 in order to recover that one that now has become really easy prey to wild animals or to thieves, okay? But the straying sheep is meant to represent is one of God's children who has either unintentionally or intentionally strayed into some kind of sin or some kind of error or some kind of deception, something that's not in line with God's truth. They've kind of strayed in this direction because we all know that just like sheep, you know, you've, you've heard the stories about sheep. They're stupid. You know, they'll just put their head down, they'll start chomping, and they'll just eat until they literally fall off a cliff. So they're just, they're just going to keep going. Sounds like some of us, doesn't it? So he says, so we know that if it's, he's saying it's so easy for that to happen, it's going to happen to us too. We know that that can happen. Remember last week we saw in verse 7 that we live in this fallen and broken world. And so what that means is inevitably, inevitably, there are going to be times when you and I will be tempted to stray. We are going to, I don't have to tell you that. Many of you are going, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a strayer. We do that. And we're going to be tempted to do that quite often. It's interesting to me, though, that it's interesting. This guy's got 100 sheep, okay? One goes off. It doesn't say that he saw one wandering away. He noticed that one was gone. What does that say? What does that say about this, this, uh, this man who had them? It shows how intimately acquainted with each individual uniqueness of every sheep. I'm sure, I mean, they're walking around every corner going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They're not counting 100 every time they go into a new pasture. He's not saying he did that. No, he knows. This guy knows every marking. It's like David Gross in the farm up on the hill there. He knows every little detail about those goats and the chickens and the bunnies and all those things up there. He knows, and they know him. Blackberry never came back. Blackberry never came back. Okay, see? Yeah, you know. <laughs> Pile of feathers. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, so that's what he's saying here. So uniquely knows every detail that can look out over the flock and take a little look and go, oh, oh, Daisy's missing or whatever. That's how intimately equated. That's how, that's how God knows us. Remember, he knows the hairs of our head. They're numbered. He knows us. Now, what he's saying here is that uh, when he recovers the sheep, notice that he says he rejoices greatly more, more so than over the ones that didn't go astray. 
Now, it wasn't that this one that went astray, oh my gosh, that's the prize. Oh, sorry. That was the prize sheep that went away. Oh no. He's not saying that. He's not saying that this one was more superior or more important than the others. It's simply due to the incredible joy of recovering this lost sheep. Remember the prodigal son? Remember the prodigal son's dad? Remember how he responded? With crazy joy. I mean, his son had just squandered everything. And he came back, and his dad was overjoyed because he was back. Did it mean he was more important than his other son? Well, his other son fought that for a while. That's not that what it was. He was just so excited. I remember when we first moved to the Bay Area back in 1993, I remember we lived in Foster City, Frosty City, and um, that's what we called it because it was always cold there. And um, I remember 4th of July, and I say this because we went to a 4th of July. I was shocked coming from L.A. and going to a 4th of July event that was absolutely freezing was so foreign to me. So we were on the lagoon in, uh, in Foster City across the street from our church, big, this big field, and everybody's just piled on it because they're going to have a fireworks show there. So we're all bundled up. We're all, and I remember I got my, I got my uh, at that time I only had two sons. My youngest was three. And I remember we were with other people in our church. There was hundreds, literally hundreds of people in this field. Fireworks show ended. People got up, started leaving. We're talking. We're talking. Moms, you know where I'm going with this? My three-year-old's gone. Gone. I mean, we have no idea. I mean, a slew of people. My three-year-old is, is absolutely, and we're just panicking. And it just went on and on and on and on to the point, man, we're getting church members are running all, because it's just a mob of people started walking. And he just got caught up in the mob. Oh, it's time to leave. Dumb sheep. I'm <laughs> I got to tell you, when I found my son, Isaac, I cannot tell you how overjoyed. I, I mean, it was like this, I mean, that sense of panic. If you've ever, if you're a parent and you've ever lost a kid in the mall or at the zoo or whatever, you know that sense of intense panic that sets in. And I remember when we got, it was just this, my wife's crying when we found him. We're telling him, yeah, because he's more important than you, other son. No, of course we weren't saying that. We were just excited. And that's what, that's what God is saying here. That's what Jesus is trying to get a, across to us here. This is the heart of God towards every single one of us. And we know that this is also the heart of Jesus because in passages like Luke 19, which is also, which is actually the passage that was eliminated here, it says, for the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. He's a seeker. He goes out. I gotta find him. I gotta get him. That's the way he is once he's got us, but also when we're in and when we stray, he's also going after us. Now, look, look how Jesus uh, punctuates this whole idea of how highly God values each and every child of his. Look at verse 14. He says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see, it's God's deep desire that none, none of his children come to any kind of spiritual ruin because of wandering into sin. It's not what he wants. He doesn't want to see that. Like I know sometimes we say, well, you know, maybe if they go through some hard times, they'll learn their lesson. And God does allow that to happen sometimes. But he desires nobody 
to get lost in their sin to where we, they're just so sucked into it that they just stray off. He doesn't want to see that. He doesn't want to see that happen. The point of this little parable, the point of this whole thing that he's saying here is that God highly values each and every one of his children, and listen to this, will go to extreme lengths to bring a straying or wandering child of his, his back into fellowship with him. He will go to extreme lengths where sometimes we think, okay, that person's so far gone. No, he will go to extreme lengths. Now, we're going to see here that it's clear that we as fellow members of the body of Christ are not only expected to reflect this mindset, we're not only supposed to be thinking this way and feeling this way, but we are expected to take an active role in rescuing those that have gone astray, those have, that have strayed off and those that have wandered off. We are to take an active role in that, all of us. And we're going to see that in a very famous and oftentimes misused section of Scripture here. Now, uh, look, at verse, look at verse 15. Verse 15 starts off this whole new kind of section here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, this is the famous church discipline section of Scripture that oftentimes is used, misused a lot. So we're going to try to figure out what Jesus is, is really saying here. Um, because a lot, oftentimes... Um, we deal with this, this, first of all, this phrase that's in here that we gets misused is some of your Bibles have a phrase that the others don't, and it's that phrase, against you. You'll know, if you have the NIV, I don't think you have that in your, in your passage. Many scholars believe that the phrase, sinned against you, was added later, once again, like these other things, and it didn't appear in earlier manuscripts. Yet here's the thing, though. As we will see in this next sermon, the next sermon I give is about Peter. He's going to be saying, well, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? So that alone kind of tells us that, okay, this could be the emphasis here. This could be the emphasis that it's, that's just about someone who sits, sins against me. But here's the deal. Whether this phrase belongs in there or not, remember what we talked about last week? It's like we, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, is that there's no such thing as private sin. There's no such thing. Our sin always has an impact on the lives of others, especially within the body of Christ, because remember what we've seen, we are one. We belong to each other. So of course, your sin is going to impact me and mine you. Somehow it is going to do that. The bottom line is that sin unchecked always has devastating consequences, always no matter what. It quenches or impedes the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. It impedes our ability to discern the truth so often, truth from lies. Sin robs us of our joy, and it causes us to feel this total separation oftentimes between God and us. When we sin against, because when we sin against God, when we sin, we are sinning against a holy God. And as a holy God, he calls us to be holy. That's what this is all about. We're to be holy as well. Look what Peter says. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, so you must live as God's obedient children. 
You didn't know any better then, but now you, have, you must be Oh, sorry, I, I, skipped, I skipped lines. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God chose you, who God chose you, is holy. So that's what he's saying. His, his concern is our holiness. It always gets down to that, always. And that's why we're told that when we notice that another brother or sister is in sin, we see that they're doing something that is contrary to God's law, something that, that's going to hurt them, that's, it's, that's sin, we're to go and to confront them. That's our job. That's our role as being a part of this family. Now, I know just bringing this up for many of you, you're going, ooh, I don't like that idea. The idea of confronting someone in their sin. This makes you extremely uncomfortable. Just the thought of doing this for some of you, it causes you, you know, a little visceral response, the thought of causing some con- possible, probable conflict. But there's a good chance that that will happen when we confront people on their sin, especially when it's sin that we know that will have an impact on their intimacy with God and intimacy with others. But we do do that. When we confront them, what we're doing is we're showing them that we highly value them. That's the point. I value so, you so much that I am willing to sacrifice everything. I'm willing to do whatever, no matter what. You are so valuable to me that I'm willing to confront you even if we lose our friendship. Even if you'll never talk to me again. You matter so much to me. And we see that what he says here, as verse 15 says, we saw that, it says to gain. We saw that it says to gain or to win back. We're doing it to gain. We're doing to win them back, to bring them back. Not make sure there's no conflict. Not make sure everybody likes me. Because if I value you, your position with, as a fellow brother and sister in Christ, your position with him, your standing with him, your relationship is way more important than what you think about me. Easy to say, though, isn't it? Even as I'm saying, I'm going, I want you to like me. Too. But this is what he's saying here. James writes this. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. That's what we want. See, the truth is that if we neglect confronting each other in our sin, the can- this cancer of sin will slowly and inevitably spread, not only throughout that person, but throughout the whole body of Christ, because we are one. You want to know why so often churches go under, why so many churches are unhealthy? It's because sin has been allowed to spread like a cancer. It wasn't a big deal. They're not hurting anybody but they're still living contrary to God's law and they're claiming to be a follower of Jesus and no one is doing anything about it because we don't want to upset the apple cart. We want people to feel loved here and accepted here. Of course we want people to feel loved and accepted here, but not because they're able to skirt by what God wants, wants, how wants them to live. It's because we're willing to call them on stuff. We're willing to say, I love you so much, I want you to be holy and I'm gonna, I see something that's hindering that and I'll do whatever it takes. If you've ever read anything by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, man, he's just, he's, what a great guy he is. He has a classic book called Life Together. I highly, highly recommend 
you read it. It's a small book, really good book. Uh, it's about Christian community. Listen to this fairly, fairly long, a little bit, this uh, quote from this book. He says this, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin's de- sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into light, into the light. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother, the expressed Acknowledge sin has lost all its power. That's our goal. That's our goal in confronting someone in their sin. We don't confront people in their sin in order to get them out of the church. Oh, look, who, look who's so-and-so. Look how they've been acting. We need them out of here. We need them to go over to new life. You know, we, we, we need them at it. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to get people out of the church. We do this in order to keep the people that are in the church pure and holy. That's why we do it. And we're human, and we're going to mess up. We're going to be tempted to sin. So don't be surprised when your brother or your sister falls into sin. Don't be surprised. Be compassionate. Be ready to do whatever it takes to bring them back. So here's the question. How do we do this? How then, this is where things get messy in the church. This is where things go off. This is where things go sideways so often in the church because this whole idea of church discipline so often is handled not in a, in a very unhealthy way. How are we to confront our fellow brother or sister in Christ when we see that they have strayed and wander off into some kind of sin, some error or deception. We, we totally see it. Well, the first thing we need to do, and it's not mentioned here, but obviously the first thing we need to do is have the proper attitude. Galatians chapter 6 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, or just you who are spiritual, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. You see, our mindset needs to be that of humble meekness with a spirit of love and a spirit of of humility and genuine concern for that person's soul. I mean, that's the spirit of this whole thing here. This whole process, that needs to be the spirit of it. So with this mindset, we see that we're the first, we're supposed to go and tell or go and point out to this person or this brother or sister where we see that they have strayed that they have gotten off the path. We don't wait. We don't, okay, I'm going to wait. Okay, maybe next year they'll get this thing together. Maybe it'll, it'll eventually come. No, no, we don't judge. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe that. We don't tell. We don't gossip. Can you believe how Deanna is like, I mean, no way. Isn't Al keeping her to, you know, come on. No. We talk to other people. God, did you see, you know, maybe we should, should maybe someone should go to them and talk to them. No, 
You go. You see it, you go. That's what he's saying. One. One person. Okay? We don't slander that person. We're supposed to go to them alone. We go to them privately. We go to them one-on-one in order to gain or to win them back. See how that protects that person from uh, feeling like they're being ganged up on and all that? They have the opportunity to, to turn towards Jesus with just one person, one person only that loves them and cares for them and knows them. How beautiful is that? So it's a great opportunity that they're given here. Now, what if that doesn't work? What if that initial private one-on-one meeting isn't successful? What if they refuse? What if they, what if they say, you know what? No way. So what do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and say, hey, I tried. I tried. I went to him. It was biblical. Great. No way. We don't stop. Remember, every single sheep was vital to that man. Every single one. And we need to see it that way as well. Look at verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so the next step, take two or three people with you. No, you know, we're going to gang up. My whole small group's going to go talk to them. No, you take two or three people. And the role of these two or three people is to not only make sure that what this person is being confronted on truly is sin. Okay, let's make sure, because this isn't about oh, this person offended me, or this person did something I don't like. That's not what this is about. This is about they have strained, strayed from the truth of the gospel, of, of gospel living here. Okay? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that not only that is that not, is that is it really sin, but hopefully lovingly help this person to see that it's not just the opinion of that one person. Someone else sees it too. I'm here to verify, but just so you know, we both love you, or all three of us, four of us love you, and we're just confirming this with you, okay? We're not going to gang up on you, okay? Notice, notice that there's no mention here. Jesus doesn't say, and then go get one of the pastors. Go get one of the elders to go do this. No, there's no mention of church leadership whatsoever in this process. You go, you go. All of us are supposed to be going, to those that have strayed. We're supposed to take an active role. Every single one of us in this room is to be taking an active role in bringing back, going after people that are straying. Every single one of us. doesn't fall to anybody in particular. That's any, no one's more important in, in this process. Now, so what, what, what if this person still refuses? What if you got your little group, you've gone to this person? First of all, you don't give up. Don't give up on that person. Remember, this person is an important child of God. Look what verse 17 says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell all the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the next thing we see here, wow, bring it to the church. I don't know about you, I've never seen this happen before. I've, I've never been, I've talked to someone recently who said that they have seen this, this um, going. Actually, I read a story this week about a guy who eventually later came back to his church repentant and everything because they did do this. Because the point of taking this crazy, this is just a huge, drastic measure. The point is to do this in order to get this person to truly listen to what has been said. The hope, the hope here is that faced with this disapproval of their sin by an entire church body, this person We'll see that, okay, it wasn't just this group of people that had something against me. Everybody knows now. 
This is the next step. Every, and we're not slandering that person. We're saying, we've gone to this person. We love this person. And we want you to know. We want you all to know. We all love this person. We want this person back. We're desperate. Everybody, we want this person. Everybody be praying. We want them back. I would imagine most people, if they're really, really stubborn at this point and they have no intention of, of, of uh, repenting, they're probably going to leave. A good chance they're going to leave. That's a lot of people. But see, that pressure is meant to basically love them into repentance. Okay, that's, that's the whole idea here. Now, if they still refuse, if they still refuse, as Jesus says, that they are to be treated basically as an unbeliever, as someone who basically is choosing to remain in their unbelief and in their sin. That's what he means by tax collectors here. But how do we do that? means that we are to love them. How do we do that? Choose to remain. If they're going to remain that way, if we're going to say, you are going to be seen now as an unbeliever, this means that as followers of Jesus, we are to still love this person, yet not as a brother or sister in Christ. There's a difference. There's a difference here. I mean, we're supposed to love this person as Jesus would love them, who sacrificed his life for them, has extreme compassion for them. Yet, for this person, there's going to be no place of, obviously, no place of leadership within the church. Communion, they should not be taking communion. That seems drastic, doesn't it? Seems so harsh. But once again, the hope is that this type of drastic action, when it's taken, this person will come to realize that their actions are that they are that these are they need to recognize that their actions are off that they have been wrong which will in turn hopefully lead them to sorrow and that sorrow to repentance and that repentance to this new renewed fellowship and joy that's the goal that is the hope now here's one of the problems with this here's where the snag often happens in this when someone who's hearing about this process or they've heard they're even in this process oftentimes they say wait a second hold on who are you to judge me? Who are you? Who made you God? Who said that you are supposed to be the one? How, who gave you permission to play God? This happens often in this process. Well, to that objection, Jesus gives us the last couple of verses here. Verses 18 to 20 says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right, some confusing stuff in here, but here's what it's talking about here. This whole binding and loosing thing, what it's referring to is the authority and the responsibility that followers of Jesus, that we have to rightly interpret and to apply the truths of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We have responsibility, but we also have authority in saying, yes, we believe this is right. We believe this is wrong. As followers of Jesus, we are stewards of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That's what our role is. We have the, restore, we have the authority and the responsibility to faithfully and to properly carry out the matters of the kingdom here on earth. That's what, we're, that's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. We're not supposed to just sit back and hope that people get it, that hope that people just naturally become a healthy body of Christ. How is that going to happen? 
That's why when there's no vision, when there's no, here's where we want to be. Here's what we're mission. Here's what we're all about. When there's none of that, we just kind of lop along and we forget, and we realize, wait, wait a second. No, we're here. We have a responsibility and we have this authority to be able to say, this is what, the, this is the way it is in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to act on that. Lovingly, we are going to act on this. This means that we have given the responsibility to exercise this authority to not only confront, but to discipline. We have the authority and the responsibility to discipline other believers when they are straying. You have the authority. You have the responsibility to come to me when you see that there's sin in my life. Rob, this doesn't seem, is, am I getting this right that you, I heard this? Or am I getting this right that you did that? I had this happen to me once. Right, I have a, a group of men that have come to me. I was, they were talking about some position I wanted to take, and they had said, you know what? Um, there's some things that we kind of got wind of. Would you tell us that this is true? I said, yeah, that, that happened. I said, okay, we just think you're probably not ready right now. Because, and that really, at first, it hurt. But man, it made me a better man. It made me so much better of a man because I saw that, yes, there was some sin there. There was some selfishness there. I, need to re- I needed to repent of that and not beat myself up over that, but I needed to repent so I could be the godly man that I know these guys wanted me to be. So it's a great process. This isn't just for pastors or bishops or for priests. It's for all of us who humbly submit to the reign and rule of Christ in our lives. It's literally, if you want to see it this way, it's literally a transference of authority from God to us. He said, this is the way it needs to be in the kingdom. I'm giving you the authority. Go do it. Be responsible. In saying now, this last part, when saying that two or three, where two or three are gathered, he is among them. Jesus is saying that when believers in the local church gather together in his name, and as it relates to prayer for wisdom in dealing with the matter of a fellow believer who has gone astray, what he's saying here is those believers can count on the wisdom and guidance that they're asking for. Okay, this isn't about a prayer meeting. He's not, we, we use that all the time. Hey, two or three are gathered. We're here. Church is happening. No, this verse is talking about disciplining a fellow brother or sister in Christ. When we come together and we seek wisdom and we want to know how to do this, he says, I'm going to give you that guidance. I am going to give you that wisdom to do this. This, my friends, this is what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ, to be valued and loved by God and each other because we are one in Christ. To take an active role in spurring one another on to Christ like this. We want to be a church that reaches this community. Then we want to be a church that's calling each other out on holiness. Then people come to this church and they go, whoa, what's so different about them? What's different about the, us is that we are willing to live the, in holiness the way God wants us to. And when we don't, we love each other enough to call each other out on it. Wow. That's going to have a tremendous impact. To be willing enough to care, to care to confront each other when we go astray. Pastor John MacArthur says this, never is the church more in tune with heaven, more in tune with the Father, more in tune with Christ himself than when it's dealing with sin. That's 
how important holiness is to God. For the sake of our individual and corporate holiness, for the sake of Christ in childlike humility, may each of us trust that God will give us the courage to be the family members that each one of us needs us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we're once again grateful for your word that is so so good, but often so difficult. So God, I want to pray for myself and everybody here when it comes to calling one another out or confronting one another on our sin, not because we're looking to be legalistic, but because we so desperately love our brothers and sisters in Christ that we want them to be holy, that we'll, we'll do whatever it takes for them to be holy. Help us to be that kind of church that loves so deeply because you love us so much. Thank you, God, that when we stray, you'll do whatever it takes to seek us and to save us. In Christ's name we pray.